0: last week Nigel spoke to us about uh, missional giving and Steve's going to come and give us his reflections um, this morning um, picking up the theme of giving again so let's pray for Steve as he does that. Father God we thank you for Steve for um, his gifts that he uses as a member of this church to help teach us your word and to deepen our faith in you. And so we pray for him this morning, Lord, that you would uphold him, strengthen him by your spirit and anoint his words, that they may speak deeply into our hearts and minds, and that by the grace of your spirit, you might enable us to respond to what Steve shares. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> right. at that. Um, right, okay, let's just let me get things organised. Um, well, thanks for asking me to speak. It's a great honour and a privilege to, uh, to share thoughts with you on a, on a day such as today, a gift day. Um, and I ought to apologise. I always feel I ought to look more smart when I preach, but I have to be comfortable to be able to do anything, so that's why I look sort of slightly shambolic. But I, it's not through lack of respect, I can assure you. Um, and I really hope that I do an important uh, justice to such an important topic as this and I hope that you find my words of interest and if the talk raises any questions or concerns I should be around at the end if anyone wants to talk further about these matters because the passage we've just read, it's quite confusing to understand and it involves quite a lot of interesting theology so I'm not going to include much of that in the talk today but if you wish to talk further I'm available and hopefully Through my words, you may feel encouraged to give generously to our church. Although, having said that, the fact that I still have my chocolate coin indicates maybe I'm the wrong person to be asking these questions. There we go. So, it's an amazing Bible passage uh, 2 Corinthians. And what it is, it's a message from Paul to talk about the logistics, about giving a gift that's been promised by the church in Corinth aid the victims of famine in Jerusalem. And Paul was on some sort of fundraising drive and was trying to encourage the Corinthians to be as generous as possible uh, in their donations. And he hoped that the Gentiles in in the fledgling church at Corinth would be generous towards the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And although the Corinthians had promised much, Paul wisely thought that he should send, quote, the brothers along to visit them and make sure that the gift was properly organised and collected. Now, for various reasons, I see the church in Corinth as rather similar to the church in Camborne in style, um, both in terms of its age and in terms of the sorts of people who worshipped there. This is my own opinion, of course, but... <laughs> It's rather interesting that the church in Corinth was around seven years old at the time at which this gift was given. And interestingly, in a couple of weeks, this building, I believe, if my math is correct, will also be seven years old. So there are some parallels between the gift that the Corinthians are promising to these people in Jerusalem. And uh, this building in Cambodon Church as such has formed a really important part of my life and has done so for ten years or so now. Um, and spiritually, my personal highlight was the day in mid-November when this building first opened its doors, and by coincidence, it was the day I was baptised into Christ, when my life was radically changed forever. And I wonder whether you hold Camborne Church close to your heart in some way, and whether you remember certain occasions within its life with a particular joy or smile. And I wonder what part Camborne Church has played in your life so far, and what part it may yet play. Because our lives are individual threads, which weaved together right through the ages, right back to a man named Paul who was encouraging the young Corinthian church in its giving. Now, why was it giving? Well, it was giving because of the inspiration from Jesus Christ, who had given up his life just a few years earlier as he took on the burden of our sin and changed things forever. And due to the dedication of Paul and the founders of the early church and countless nameless Christians ever since, The story of the gospel has been successfully stewarded and preserved through periods of calm and periods of storm for centuries. And although the small town of Campbell might seem relatively insignificant on the grand scale of history, we are still the hands and feet of Christ in this time and in this place, each of us sitting here. And that is an amazing responsibility. Imagine that. And as members of the church, we must look seriously the best ways to preserve and promote God's word, and the best ways to tend for his house and to care for his people. So today's a gift day. It's a day in which we consider the question of how much time and how much money to offer in service and support of this church. Now, some of you may have very well-paid jobs with little time to spare. Some of you may have no job, such as myself, or a poorly paid job with, with more time on your hands, but most likely, I suspect, is that you are all overworked and underpaid, with no slack in either time or money. Indeed. So, <laughs> given your varied circumstances, it seems to me to be terribly <coughs> impolite to ask for your money or time. Because I think maybe I just don't have the fundraiser's gene that enables me to do that without feeling some British embarrassment. And I'm definitely not going to follow the TV evangelist route of saying give till it hurts, which is flawed in almost every aspect and every regard. So there really won't be a hard sell here. So I do want you to just sit comfortably and listen. The thing that I do feel comfortable talking to you about is the Bible, Unfortunately, as always, it gives some very clear advice on the problem at hand. It gives some advice and instructions on giving to the church. Now, the Old and New Testaments are at odds with each other concerning giving. There are grave clashes because their styles and ways are very, very different. And I think I'd like to start with the Old Testament because what I first want to do is to challenge a really huge myth about giving to the church, which seems around today. It's a myth which often leads to guilt on people who don't give 10% or smugness on people who drop into the conversations the fact that yesterday of course managed to give 10% in tithes so this is a myth right? that slide is very clear because I want this point to be very clearly made you are not asked to tithe 10% to charity anymore okay? if you were a Jew a couple of thousand years ago, yes that would sort of be true but today it's not true, it's a myth Okay? It's a myth that's been preserved for various reasons. The primary one being it meant that the early church bishops, many of whom were corrupt, became very, very rich as a result of this. But there is no compulsion upon you to tithe today. Okay? There'll be a series of slides which essentially will make you convinced you don't need to give anything to the church. <laughs> but don't worry those who are concerned about the money factor because we will get onto to that uh, as, we, as we go on. <laughs> Now, why is it a myth? Well, first of all, there's no requirement in the New Testament at all to tithe, neither directly nor implied, because Jesus didn't require it. Paul doesn't ask for it. uh, Nobody does. And if you think about it, if there was one person in the New Testament who would ask for tithing, if he could, I think it would be Paul. I think it would be the sort of thing he would demand if it were appropriate. But Paul is simply saying, just give what you feel right about giving. And the second reason it's a myth is because actually the Old Testament tithe wasn't actually 10% anyway. It was actually much, much more than that. So here's a little picture. I'm not sure how much of you can see, but here's your field at the bottom. Right? And of your field, 10% had to be given to the poor. Okay, There's a the poor person at the bottom being given his 10%. Very terrible joke saying... Would you like to claim gift aid on that as the beggar receives his loose, loose change? <laughs> because these days we seem to focus so much on the logistics of finance. Um, the second thing is what's called the Leviticus or the Levitican or something similar type, which went to looking after the church and the people who ran it. And this was historically founded in the fact that when the Israelites took over Israel, or the Jewish people, the Levites weren't given any land. So they had no means of production. So roughly a twelfth of the population had no means of production. So in terms of sharing, the other people provided for them, that's where this tithe comes from. And the third was a festival tithe, which um, as far as I can work it out, was just an excuse to have a gigantic feast at the end of every year. So feasting was very important. And a lot of money was set aside to ensure there was enough beef and meat. Ken's gonna smile at this point at the feast at the end of the year. Now, this was 30%, okay? So if you want to tithe like the Old uh, Old Testament people did, 30% is the figure to which you should be aiming instead of 10. And, of course, many of the Jews couldn't actually meet this without extreme hardship, especially once the Romans came around with their taxes. So in the end, the tithing figure was reduced to 22%, apparently. Now, although I used to be a mathematician, these figures make me feel cold because they seem so clinical in terms of giving. And actually, unsurprisingly, human nature corrupted this system. And by Jesus' time, computing the tithe correctly and ensuring personal purity and total compliance with the law had become far more important to most people than the need for mercy, the need for justice, compassion and faithfulness. Those are the things that really matter. So in short, like many other Old Testament practices, it became perverted over time. The tithing system of compulsory giving Was overturned with the coming of Jesus. However, with Jesus, the essence of the law remains true. It remains the same. And so the essence I think we can draw from this is that we are still under some compulsion to give to the church. That's the title of the rite. We're still under some compulsion to give to the poor and the needy. And Honestly, I don't understand what the third one implies for us today. Maybe it's to save up for Christmas or something. I just don't know. But the essence is true. We need to look after the poor. We need to look after the church. Now, there are no particular rules for this giving anymore. So if you like, you could give nothing at all. Um, If you like, you could put your hand in your pocket or sign up to volunteer as and when the mood took you. Or if you like, you could choose, if you want to, not, there's nothing wrong with this, to give pretty much 10% of your income. That's fine. You could even choose, if you wanted to, to give 10% of your income maybe after tax and now been taken off, excluding bonuses and interest on savings. Some complicated system. And <laughs> when I used to work in London, I heard people went to sermons where the sermons were about what you were supposed to give from your bonuses in terms of regular giving to the church. And they were, they were very strict about what was allowed. Essentially, these systems always tend to end up with you stick the biggest chunk under the back of the sofa and you donate from the smallest bit that you have, the 10%. But, you know, if if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. Because it's between you, your conscience, and God. Okay? There are three people who are involved with your giving. Nobody else. Between you, your conscience, and God. So... I wonder, though, are we sufficiently charitable? Or maybe, are we charitable in the right way? Maybe our hearts are in the right place, but perhaps we're, we're giving in the wrong way. Oh, we've got a TV there. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I think the church loses out, actually, compared with the poor and needy. Because here are some sick and needy people. And it tugs at your heartstrings. You see an image like this and you want to help, you want to ease their suffering. Where I'll explain this slightly obscure picture on the right, but the church sort of is less emotive. Okay? There's less reason you'd look at the church and out of compassion choose to give. You know, you need your give to various charities if there's been a hurricane, a tsunami, people starving, refugees, and this is good. OK, there's nothing wrong with this, but there are very few situations where you do a knee-jerk giving towards the church. And the church is in a double bind because many of the costs of the church are hidden. So this is an iceberg picture. With a, I think this may only work for me, but an iceberg, the majority is hidden under the sea. OK, 10% is roughly above the water. So there's a visible part of the, the church, but there are lots of hidden costs, so there are things like electricity, cleaning, rates, maintenance, building supplies. Not all enormously exciting, but it does all add up and it has to be paid. Now there are salaries as well, but on top of the salaries we need to pay the national insurance contributions, we need to pay pension contributions. We do need to pay these for these people who work for us. Again, not tremendously exciting, but they are necessary costs that are sort of hidden under this image of the church. Now, it's worth pointing out, though, that the salaries of the church staff, although it's costly to fund, it seems, this is another problem, because you can give 10 quid to Water Aid and someone gets a drink and it's a good thing. If you give 10 pounds towards a salary, it doesn't really go very far. So it seems expensive. And this is even on top of the fact that our church workers, they work many, many hours for free. They work for free overtime. And they're paid really a small amount compared with a secular job with the same responsibilities. So have no doubts if you are thinking about these issues that our staff are dedicated and hard-working Christians who love God and they devote themselves to his service but we still must pay them and it's all too easy I think to see a donation to the church is vanishing into a faceless pot of costs because often I think we like to know exactly where our money is going to but when it comes to the church and this is what's said very clearly in the Corinthians chapter, we just have to trust the ministers, the treasurer, the church council, that the gifts will be, as Paul puts it in the letter to Corinthians, administered to honour the Lord himself openly and in the way which is above reproach. says it so clearly, 2,000 years ago. And I certainly trust these people and trust that gifts to the church will steadily and quietly grow God's kingdom here in Camborne and the surrounding area. And for that reason, I would urge you to donate, even if you feel it's a small, inconsequential amount. Just get into the habit of donating to the church on a regular basis. So the question now comes, although I said there was no compulsion to give a certain amount, as to how much you should in fact give. Because there is freedom of choice and there's great variation in circumstances. Well, there is an amazing answer to this, because God loves a cheerful giver. I consider this to be one of the most amazing statements in the whole Bible. And I don't say this lightly. And why is this, you might think? Well, it turns out there are very, very, very rare instances where we're explicitly told in the Bible what God actually loves. Did you know this? We're told God loves the world, or his world. We're told God loves his son. We're told God loves you, okay? All of you, you people. God loves all of you. We're told this explicitly. And he also loves a cheerful giver. And I looked very carefully, and there are no other examples in the Bible where we're told God loves a specific thing. I checked it carefully. So, what does this mean? Well, it means that you better give cheerfully. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> it's that straightforward. If you're told God loves something, it's a really good idea to do it. Okay? So, he wanted to give cheerfully. So I don't want you to give money or time that you don't want to give. Okay? Don't give money or time which will lead to stress, unhappiness or hardship. Don't give, don't give it. I know I said at the beginning this wouldn't be a hard sell, but this is perhaps the easiest sell. I'm just saying don't give anything that will stop you being cheerful. The flip side of this is that it's not a good idea to give foolishly. And I'm not going to condescend you by saying why giving is a good idea. Giving brings its own rewards, and you can bet your bottom dollar that doing something that God loves has got to yield amazing consequences. Truly amazing consequences. You'll be cheerful, God will love it, and you will be rewarded. We don't give with any desire for any particular reward or according to any particular scheme. But this will simply make the rewards that we receive back even sweeter. And so now it is down to you, your conscience and God. What are you going to choose to give in terms of time or money? And what I'd like to do, I invite you to reflect for a minute or two on your strengths, your capabilities, what you have available, what you could make available. How is it that God is talking to you in a way he wishes you to give towards our church? So I've put together um, a series of images concerning giving and cheerfulness. Okay? And so what I'd simply like to do is for a minute or two in silence, I'd like you to just reflect you, your conscience and God about you and your giving. Perhaps some of these images or quotes will inspire you in a certain way. Now, that was giving God less than one minute of your time. It's amazing how much God can communicate in such a small time. I hope this has made you think in some way. And just to conclude, at the start of my talk, I referred to my baptism. And as I considered the themes behind this topic, I wondered how things would be different if Camden One Church had not been successfully planted. Would I be a Christian? Would I have survived some very difficult times intact without the fellowship of the church and my faith? Would I know the peace of Christ? What would have happened to all of the other Christians in Camborne? Would they have travelled in and out of Cambridge or St. nears to other churches, taking their friendship, fellowship and community-building skills with them? How would the schools... And the Vines, in particular, have evolved without a strong official Christian voice on the governing bodies. What would have become of some of the young people in Camborne who have been helped for over a decade by dedicated members of our congregation and our youth and family workers? What about Cafe 19? Imagine that that wasn't there. The Cavendish Court Fellowship Group, Parent and Toddler Space, Three C's and all the other groups which bring fellowship and companionship to anyone who wants it and rooted in this church? How about the more recent developments of the parish nurse and the food bank? Would there have been the passion and supporting structures in place to have seen these wonderful initiatives through without the church? How about the Catholic Church, which has thrived in this space? And what about our partner charities and the prayers that have been offered? Heartfelt pleas for help, peace and intervention, Prayers which have been offered week in, week out, without interruption. Prayers to say, Lord, you have gathered us in this place at this time to be your church. May all that we do and are build your kingdom. Can you imagine Camborne without its church? Please, please help us to secure its future for the years to come. And most importantly, to help build God's kingdom on earth. Thank you.